0: Hello, and welcome to the LiteratiCast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, where I read books for children and young adults. On this podcast, I get to hang out with my publishing world friends and dish the dirt about all things children's book publishing. I'm going to get right into my guest interview today because we got to talking and could not shut up, and we ran out of time for any extra gabbing on my part. So, today my guest is the amazing author illustrator Dan Santat. Why have crowned the hardest working man in kids' books? Let me see if I can get Dan on the line. Hi, Dan. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm such a fan of yours, and I'm so glad to have you here. In fact, I'm looking at a framed beagle sketch that I can see from my desk right now.
1: Which one do you
0: have? I have, um, it's a two, uh, what do you call it? A duo? Um, it probably has some name like triptych, but two tick, diptych? diptych probably yeah. it's um one side is a boat and one side is little beagle with a crown and stars i think you gave it to the bea auction like many oh, years ago
1: okay oh yes okay i remember that one yes anyway there's not so, too uh, many there's not too many sketches out there actually yes
0: well i'm very happy, happy to have one then oh well, in any case so let's get right into it because we have so much to talk about Very briefly, can you tell me, how did you get your start in children's publishing?
1: Uh, You know, I took the long, I took the long route. It was, uh, it was not even envisioning art as a career. Uh, My parents wanted me to be a doctor. And so I naturally, of course, went to a four-year college, got a degree in microbiology. Oh, my God. And then all my friends in college could see how much I liked art. Uh, because all my class notes were really detailed pictures of the cell and everything. <laughs> and, you know, my grades didn't necessarily reflect my passion for mm-hmm. the sciences, if you will. And so <laughs> they said, uh, you know, you're someday going to be a horrible dentist. Why not shift gears and see if you can just get into art school? And so with their, with their, prodding and encouragement i applied to art school and i got in and i originally remembered thinking i wanted to be an animator because at the time uh all the rage was uh 3d animation and uh, the lion king was really popular Hmm. and uh, like 3d effects for for film was like all the rage and i thought i wanted to be an animator i thought i wanted to work at disney or pixar and I got into an art school. I, As soon as I could, I signed up for my first uh, 3D animation course, and it was horrible. I hated it.
0: Oh.
1: Uh, because uh, the, the thing about the software for making uh, computer animation is that the program is clearly – it clearly feels like an engineer made it. So, in other words, if I wanted to make something uh, shiny, I I just wish there was a button that said, "Oh, make it shinier," you know. know? (laughs) And instead, it's like someone came up with like a sine wave and like like a graph with like ten numbers that you have to implement, and it says, uh, "You know, measure the specularity along the sine wave of how shiny you want it to be." And I'm like, "What? I just want to make this shiny." I really (laughs) hate this. And not only that. I remember making one minute of film and it took me 14 weeks. And I remember thinking there has to be a better way to tell stories. Right. And uh, there was a children's book course at the school I went to. It was an art center college of design. And uh, I was like, there were people who were interested in getting into it. Um, but it's funny. Like so many people dropped out after the first few weeks. Cause I think either they thought they had figured everything out or it just wasn't animation or, you know, uh everyone wanted to be an art director for some film company or something like that. And mm-hmm. I don't think it really panned out to what they wanted. But for me, it felt like the best way to tell the stories I wanted to tell. And one of the things that I think was the best uh lead into the career was that my teacher really sold it as a profession where everyone's really friendly and everyone wants you to succeed and they're very encouraging. Um, But I think the thing that really had me sold on it was how how small it can be. In other words, if I want to write a book, it's just me, an editor and an art director and that's it. And I don't have to deal with a team of people to envision an idea. Like I can, I can actually get possibly, you know, with the, with the, with the right story, I can actually get this thing published and I can actually feel like I legitimately told my story to, uh, you know, an audience. And then, and then of course, uh, I mean, you and I, I think we, we've known each other from SCBWI. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was, that was heavily encouraged to join. So I went, uh, to my very first one. Uh, I remember it was a national conference and I remember back at the time it was like $285 for the whole conference. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's so expensive. Uh, I brought my portfolio, I brought a dummy book and then, uh, Arthur Levine, uh, found it, uh, at the Saturday portfolio show and, he basically just came up to me and said, "I would like to give you this uh, medium-sized bag of money."
0: Nice. <laughs> it's not kind of this small
1: bag of money. And I and I remember, I remember thinking like I didn't even know who he was because I was so green to the business. I didn't know who he was. And my teacher was there. And I and at the time, I had told him like, "Oh, I had already promised this manuscript to someone else at another publisher." Because you know, you have that whole formality of send it to an editor at a time, wait for them to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And I remember I remember the puzzling look on Arthur's face, like, oh, okay.
0: You know, <laughs> and I, Don't and I, know who I am? Right,
1: exactly. Right. <laughs> and I walked off and I had his business card in my hand. And my teacher from the art school, she pulls me aside and she's like, What are you doing right now? What are you doing? <laughs> and I said, I, I'm doing what you told me. And that's that's to, you know, send it to one editor at a time. And she was like, Do you know who that man is? <laughs> and and I was, I looked at the card and I'm like, Arthur Levine. I'm like, Do you know what he does? <laughs> and i was just like i i don't know he's like he does he does harry potter go go to him talk to him <laughs> take take the small bag of money <laughs> and so that's how i got and that's how i got started and my first have picture you, book.
0: have you in fact found that everyone is uh friendly and nice
1: oh for the most part yes absolutely um you know like i've dabbled in other fields like i've dabbled in I've dabbled in the gallery scene and, you know, the art gallery scene briefly. And it's one of those things where it can get really clicky. Uh, You know, a lot of it is about who you know and making the right connections. Um, You know, with Children's Publishing, it it sincerely feels like um, if you have talent and uh, you have the determination to do something, that there will be opportunities for you. Um, and, and, you know, like for me, like, and, and I think I can, I think I can say this for other people I know who've been members of SCBWI. It's if you've been a member of SCBWI and it, and it paid off for you, you, you tend to want to pay it forward. You want to give back to the organization.
0: Oh, totally. So what was that first book?
1: It was called the Guild of Geniuses. It came out in 2004. Um, It was part of a two-book deal. And then the second book that I did was a graphic novel called Sidekicks.
0: All right. So you've been at it for that long, 14 years. 14 years. And you have approximately 10 million books.
1: (laughs) Right. You know, I I only look at Goodreads. I don't know how good of a (laughs) – I don't know how good that is to make a solid number. I think it said somewhere around like 92
0: or something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So just this in the past year, let's say, yeah. I have made a list of all the things you have out. And I think <laughs> this is all of them. Oh, so let's start with <laughs> after, the, after the Fall. Yeah. Uh, after the Fall is kind of a, a sequel. It was highly acclaimed sequel to Humpty Dumpty, which was one of our top picks on the podcast for 2017. Oh, nice. Picture books. We love that book. Thank you. You also had illustrations for Dude by Aaron Reynolds, which came mm-hmm. out in April. Yes. You participated in Our Story Begins, an mm-hmm. anthology of kids' book creators' juvenilia. Mm-hmm. You had illustrations for Dad and the Dinosaur by Jennifer Chaldinko. And then just this month and next month, you have...
1: <laughs> oh, God.
0: ...art for a middle-grade book, Lions and Lions by Kate Beasley. Uh, next month, a collaboration with Tom Engelberger, Princess in the Pit Stop... And also, just this week or last week, um, the flippin' gorgeous illustrations for Drawn Together by Min Lay. And I th- think that's it for the recent past.
1: Let's see. I, I'm looking around my room. I'm looking around <laughs> my studio. I think you're right.
0: But dude, what I'm saying is <laughs> you're, you're possibly the hardest working man in the book business
1: i would like i would like to i would like to say that um Lewin Pham, i believe has surpassed me in publications so i would like to rescind my title and, and <laughs> hand the hand the t- hand the tiara to her
0: well, maybe you and Lewin can have like co co-cr- co crowns we can oh, sure. ma- make you both both capes of some kind
1: we both have we both will get together for coffee sometimes and we'll just have this really Dark conversation about how we're we're like brother sister versions of each other.'re right? <laughs> clones and we just have like this sick tendency to just want to work all the time. <laughs> so
0: I guess the question is literally how do you do it? Like how do you manage your time? Are you doing multiple projects simultaneously? Are you super fast? Do you not sleep? What's the deal?
1: You know what I love about this interview is that for the fourteen years I've done interviews, this is the first time it's ever been asked. That question's the first time it's ever been asked. Really, And I, I remember wanting to do a panel about time management for SCBWI and they never, but, um, okay. So in the beginning, it used to be just sheer, it's just sheer willpower. It used to be that I would put in all these hours just because I was so determined to make it into the business. So I would have a full-time job. I was working in video games. And then, and then I'd get to work at 10 a.m., come home at 7, hang out with my wife until 10 p.m., and then I'd start working on my stuff from 10 p.m. to, like, anywhere from, like, 2 or 3 in the morning. And I did that for, I did that for years. Mm. Um, and that was back when, you know, like, I had the energy to do so, you know? <laughs> Your 20s are magnificent. <laughs> and then once I started having kids, that was starting to be less so. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, you have a kid and then they wake up at night and then you break your sleep. And eventually I was getting to a point where I was getting two, two hours of sleep, three hours of sleep a night. And it was just terrible. So I had to make some changes in my life. Um, at the time I was working at the game company. Uh, I had a cartoon show at Disney channel called the replacements. And I was doing both of those things while I was still making books. It was a crazy time. And so I slowly let things go. I, Mm -hmm. I, I I got myself laid off at the video game company and then it was just a TV show and then it was just books. And then I really hated working at Disney. (laughs) And so I left the show when I found out it got picked up for a second and third season. Then I was just dedicated to books. Now, um, I would say on average, I probably put in 16 hours of work a day.
0: Oh my God.
1: Um, And the way it really, and I, and I have to say, I I think there's a, there's a discipline to the work that I had a schedule that really was dictated by my kids where, you know, you'd say I have to get the kids, I have to drop the kids off at a certain time at daycare. Then, uh, you know, they're going to be at daycare till X amount of time. That means I have six hours to get this done. Um, one of the big rules that I had was I never compromised family time for work. So I, I mean, I really burned the candle at both ends for like a good six, seven years where, you know, I didn't work on the weekends. Um, and I I would only start working during the weekdays when everybody was asleep. So, you know, My wife goes off to work, the kids go off to school, and that is that is a dedicated six hours of time, seven hours of time for me to just get down to business and get work done. And then when they come home, then they all go to bed, then I would go back to work. And I remember my wife would be furious because she'd say, You never go to bed with me, you know, like you never go to sleep with me. And I'm just like, Well, you know, I'm I'm trying to we had bought a house, we had kids, and it was just like I'm trying to I'm trying to pay for this house. And um, for some reason, when you have kids, you suddenly think you have to save money for them to go to Harvard like tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> like, money becomes this huge thing. So I was really paranoid. Like, what if this doesn't, what if this doesn't last, you know? And so a lot of, a lot of my work ethics stem from my fear of failure. Mm. And, uh, and then eventually I would say six years into freelancing full time, I suddenly started feeling like there was nothing to worry about. I suddenly started feeling like, you know what? I'm going to be able to make ends meet. And that was, I remember that was a feeling that was really new to me because, you know, anybody who freelances, there's always the concern of, where am I going to get my next job? When's that going to come? What if it never comes? Everyone always thinks like, what if this is the last job I ever get? Um, And really working was, working did two things for me. One, it quieted my mind from all the worry. <laughs> like you, if I, like, I hated relaxing. Like when <laughs> the worst time of the year for me is, the holidays, like in December, cause Mm. everyone shuts down and I'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs. Like I need someone to answering my emails right now. Cause I need, (laughs) cause there's something weird about, I need the, I need the planet to feel like it's awake and it's, and it's alive. So like, like weirdly enough, like I would work at night and I would actually watch Twitter go to sleep and I would just be working and listening to a podcast or binging shows on Netflix. And then, you know, three o'clock would come around and I'd start seeing some tweets from editors in New York. And I'd say, oh, the East Coast is waking up. Maybe, <laughs> I, should go, maybe I should go to bed. Um, and, and so really, you know, in terms of the mechanics of getting the work done, I always told myself that, I, well, I was always aware that I could work pretty quickly and I would just break down a book into spreads and I knew I could do one spread a day. And it, it was never a matter of, Oh, I, you know, I hope I can get this done in a month and a half. I would say I have a month and a half. I have to fit, finish, you know, X number of spreads a day and I just have to get it done. I just have to get X amount of work done a day or I'm going to miss my deadline. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, now that I'm 42, it's really hard to do that. Like I, and so there's something I really value about youthful energy that I used to have, because <laughs> I can't do it anymore. And like, I might stay up late one night and then I'm going to pay for it. I'll pay for it for days. Like I'll have a horrible headache. If There's something that really happens to you at a, like once you hit 40, Like, the energy level just suddenly drops to, like, 70%, you know? Well,
0: and also, I mean, you've had some big success. And so that sense of urgency is probably less prevalent, too, which, you know, I mean, sleep, it's so good when you can get it.
1: (laughs) Well, that was the thing. I, I remember I used to tell myself, your body won't miss what it doesn't know so i never <laughs> really i never allowed myself to get sleep seriously like i would i would sleep 5 4 hours and people would ask me how i did it and i said i think i literally trained my body to just be okay with that and it's funny that you say about about success because i remember i remember after winning the caldecott medal uh, those feelings actually got worse mm. i actually felt like okay it was the hard work that got me here i need to work just as hard to you know to keep my, keep my edge. And, um, and, you know, my agent called me up and she was just saying to me, you know, like, you're not enjoying what you just did. And I want you to take two months off. I want you to do nothing for two months. And I was like, what do you mean two months? That's stupid. (laughs) You know, she's like, take two months off. And I don't want to hear anything about it. Like if anybody's going to bug you about deadlines, they have to go through me, but you take two months off. I want you to enjoy this because you did a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember like the first 2 weeks it was like this is stupid I hate this relaxing is dumb. <laughs> and then you know like I decided to pick up the old Xbox controller and I went back into playing video games and and then and then a month later I was really getting into it and then by the end of the 8 weeks I finally found a calm place in my mind that I actually hadn't experienced in years. And that being um this this sense of boredom. Like when I used to work in the game industry, I would commute from Pasadena to Santa Monica on the 10 freeway every day. And that was like an hour each way. And a lot of that time, like all the stories that, that you've seen me publish, Are We There Yet? Beagle, uh, After the Fall, Sidekicks, all those ideas came from sitting in traffic in LA. Mm. And it was just this quiet moment of sitting in traffic and letting your mind wander. And it was something that, I had not experienced in over 10 years because I was just so busy sprinting, you know, one job to the next. And after those 8 weeks of relaxation, like, you know, the synapses started firing again and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I I completely forgot that my brain used to do this. <laughs> and it was as a result of that, that I, I I actually have taken an opportunity to just relax a little bit more. Not, and and I, I don't think it was a sense. Cent- it's stupid. It, it, I'm relaxing more, not because of the accomplishment, but because <laughs> I want to be more productive in my creativity. <laughs>
0: it's true though. I mean, li- listen, it's very relatable. I have never taken a vacation where I didn't also work. Right. Um, I've never just taken, like, I always work, even when I'm <laughs> somewhere beautiful and wonderful. I'm like, well, <laughs> let me just answer these emails. It's really important. So, um, but of course, you need to recharge your batteries. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so tell me, what is your studio like? It's a like- mess.
1: I have, <laughs> uh, oh God, it's a total mess. So I actually get, I get a lot of arcs. I get a lot of uh, author copies of books. I'll get. Books from publishers asking me to blurb their titles. And I just I my I have an immense amount of bookshelf space, but it's already full. I have nowhere to put these books. And I'm I'm a type of guy where I'm like, I feel really guilty getting, you know, getting rid of a, a single arc. So I might have 20 copies of an arc that I don't need anymore, but at the same oh. time, I have no idea who to give it to.
0: Ay, ay, ay. Damn.
1: Um, <laughs> what do you do I with mean, your arcs? Like what do you okay,
0: do? Okay. With- well, first of all, I th- arcs are not books. Arcs are marketing material. Right. So I will keep them until the book is out. Mm-hmm. Once there's a real book to replace that with, I recycle them.
1: Okay. God, it's just, it's just hard to read it. It's like, it's <laughs> like a
0: catalog. You know, it's not a real book. Right. I I mean, I will pass them on to kids. if they, I know that there are kids that will love that. And I, you know, maybe they can review it for the bookstore or something like that. We do have a, a program where kids can take ARCs and write little reviews for them. And that's cute. Okay. But, um, but as far as like, you know, and I do giveaways and stuff while, you know, of my own author's books, I'll do a giveaway when I have a stack of ARCs. But um, or give them to like librarians and stuff like that. But if they're just still sitting here, and now there's a beautiful book in its place, I I don't want that.
1: (laughs) Right, right. No, I totally hear (laughs) you, and I have to I have to eventually I have to let go of that at some point. Um, They do
0: recycle, okay. Right,
1: right. (laughs) So so I have I have bookshelves that are overstuffed with books, Um, and then I in the last five years I've started slowly amassing uh, an art collection of other children's book authors that I really admire. Um, nice. Well, like, I
0: have one too. What do you have in your collection?
1: Oh gosh. If I'm looking around this room right now, I have a John Clawson. Uh, I have a Kelly Murphy, um, a Matthew Forsythe, Caleb Brown. Yes. Uh, Adele Rodriguez, uh, Tony DiTralese, uh Mo Willems, uh, CF Payne, um, Sophie Blackall, Christian Robinson,
0: Wow, all in one room. So this is what I have in this room that I can see from my desk. Yours. Mm-hmm. I have Sophie Blackall. I have Sergio Ruzier. Mm-hmm. I have a Tad Hills. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um,
0: Brian Floca.
1: Yes, I have a Floca, yes.
0: Um, A Mark Siegel. Nice. And Emily Hughes. Ooh, where'd you get that? Where uh, It's a print, actually. That one is a print. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. And a... um. Matt Forsyth that I just bought,
1: uh, from the Nucleus show.
0: Yes. Which,
1: oh, that's right. Because we were tweeting about this. You had bought.
0: I bought the bought back one, cover, the brilliant, the brilliant deep. We
1: got the brilliant deep cover. Yeah, because
0: yeah. so that's one of my books, and it's I, I love it. It's So beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so moving on. How do you approach illustrating somebody else's text versus illustrating your own text? Which is harder? How are they different?
1: Um, I'll be honest with you. Illustrating someone else's text is a bit harder, uh, only because if I have the story in my mind, uh, I can pretty much map out the dummy in my head without drawing anything. So I think it's easy to, it's easy to make the transition of the narrative between text and words more seamless. If you know what you want to communicate, uh, you know, all at once, uh illustrating other people's text i mean it's not it's not that far off it's not it's not that much harder um, there are there are different projects that I will take uh, like when I started out, I think everyone kind of labeled me as the funny picture book guy, so I kept doing funny picture books uh, and it wasn't until I did Beagle where people realized, oh. He can he can do the he can do the emotional stuff as well. Um and then there was also this period where I was I was I was in this weird niche and I, I kinda thought it was pretty cool, where I was doing like these action-y picture books, like three ninja pigs and Oh no, or how my science project destroyed the world, where like I could actually draw things getting kicked in the face or, <laughs> or, you know, things blowing up, which was not something that I think you would commonly find in the picture book uh, market. Um, but the way I generally tend to approach projects is I look at everything as a problem that needs uh, a solution in terms of design and, 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 you know, you go to art school and a lot of teachers will tell you, you need to have a style. Um, But actually, one of the most influential teachers I had was an advertising teacher. And he had told us, or he had told me, because we we actually were pretty close. uh, And he had told me, you know, if you are selling yourself as a style, they're only going to hire you for a style. And that really pigeonholes you in the type of work that you can do if you can sell yourself or if you can convince people that you are a problem solver, then you don't have to have a style because then everybody can trust that you will just do right by good design. And so my approach for most projects is I'll read a manuscript, I'll sit on it for a couple weeks and really think about it. And I'll, I'll map out, I'll map out spreads. I'll map out page turns just in my mind before I even draw anything. I'll just sit there and I'll think about it. And some books are a lot smoother than others. Like I'll have ones that I've figured out in a matter of days. And and then the process is really easy uh, because I think because I really connect with the, with the material or because um, it might be something that I may have been working on myself and then the story really resonated with what I was working on. So then I just said, okay, I'm just going to start, I'm going to stop writing what I did because this story basically is going to do what I had intentions of doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are projects that I, I take on as challenges because I hadn't done before, you know Uh, like for example, I remember I remember getting Jennifer Choldenko's manuscript for Dad and the Dinosaur and uh there was a really dark tone to the story that I don't often see in picture books and actually I remember I remember talking to Jennifer about it and it was funny because she didn't even realize how dark the story was uh, and, and there were lines in there that were talking about the creatures under the manhole covers. And I said, you don't think that's dark? Like that sounds, <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Like I'd love to take an opportunity to do that. Um, so yeah. So, you know, like if I'm doing a funny picture book, that's definitely going to influence the style of how I draw the characters. I think, I think when I do funny picture books, I have much more of a animator sensibility in terms of, you know, like the slapstick, uh, you know, humor and, and the facial expressions and so forth. Uh, if I do a more heartfelt kind of story, you definitely see that reflected in uh, the palette that I use. It's a much more muted palette and oh, yeah. color becomes a, a greater influence in terms of uh, the tone of the story. Uh, the drawing mediums that I use, uh, like for drawn together, for instance, uh, you know, I, I go out of my way to make sure that the mediums that I use are the mediums that the characters use in the story, things like that. I think about all the uh, aspects.
0: So let's talk about that actually for a second. So for for those of you who have not seen drawn together by Minlay, it just came out. Um, It is about a grandfather, and grandson who do not speak the same language and aren't on the same page (laughs) until they both get out their sketchbooks and draw their own versions of heroes. Um, Every page of this book is just drenched with color and different kinds of Collagey kind of imagery as the grandfather's intricate old-fashioned etchings combine with the grandson's more naive color illustrations, and then the two of them kind of blend together and inform each other and change. It's like really a feast for the eyes. So how did you create that densely layered textural images? Is it all digital? Uh, Is it not at all digital?
1: So it's... um it's, I, I, I'm usually, I was usually known for doing like, I used to work, you know, purely digitally. Like it used to be maybe 90% digital and then 10% like traditional medium. Like I would maybe do a watercolor wash or, or, uh, you know, maybe draw something tiny in color pencil or ink. Um, but in this case, Uh, The the tables were flipped. It was probably eighty percent traditional and twenty percent digital. And and the approach that I did, like if you go, like you know, you live in New York and you know you look at a lot of graffiti on the walls, and there's a lot of there's a lot of layering that takes place. You know, Um, you know one one person does a tag, another person lays another tag on top of that tag. Um, Now in art school, I had I had a teacher that. Very much uh, went along in that collage sensibility, and I felt like I felt like there was a way to do the polar opposites uh, of the approach towards art, where the grandson was very playful, very um, how can I say it? it was like his his he had a very fearless approach to art, like not afraid to make mistakes, not afraid to use bold colors. Um, A lot of energy in the line work, whereas like the grandfather, you know, thinking about uh, my uncle, actually, because he was an artist. Um, And, you know, he would do this beautiful brushwork, very long lines, but you could actually feel the the control in the in the fingertips. Uh, Very tight rendered, a strong awareness of perspective and things like that. Um, And then drawing all those elements separately. So, uh, you know, like maybe I would draw a a picture of uh, a turtle with the tools that the young boy would have used. I would have used markers, watercolor, uh, color pencil, um, you know, things, things like that. Um, and then, and then with the grandfather was brush and ink. And then you take all those elements from their separate components And then I would put it in the computer and then I would start collaging. I would start laying things on top of the other and then maybe subtracting certain parts, maybe saying like, okay, this doesn't feel right here. Uh, I'm going to move it here. Or I might actually use that piece for a different part of the book. Um, So it actually was like, it was like making a puzzle. Um and to and to go back on your question about how I I approach books, every book I approach, I don't I don't paint seventeen spreads. I don't paint just spreads. I design an entire book. Like my mindset is, every aspect of the book has to tell some aspect of the story. So, um, I love how
0: even the case is special. Like the case is the sketchbook of the grandfather. Right. Right.
1: Right. And so, um. You know, and I had said earlier in this interview that I I was used to doing uh, a spread in one day, like that was my pace. And this was a little bit different because this was the first time in my career where I actually got a manuscript that was asking me to evolve in terms of the work that I was doing, because this wasn't the way I was typically working. And I'll be honest, that There were a number of years where I was starting to get a little bored with my style because I felt like I was going through the same motions. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was getting a little stale because I was making the same book. And this was the first time I'd done a book where it was really exciting because I didn't know what the end result was going to be. And I, I gave myself that freedom to spend time on the finishes until it felt right. And I didn't even know how long that would take. And so some of these spreads, some of these spreads took a day. Some of these spreads took three days. Some of these spreads took two weeks. Um, and I was working the editor, uh, Rotem Moskovich. Uh, I, you know, she, she and I had worked together on, on another project. And so she knew about my work habits. And I think there was a moment where she was checking in saying like, uh, is everything okay? okay? Because uh, <laughs> I figured you would have knocked this out by now. And I'd send her something and I'd say, I think I have something here. I, I don't know. What do you think? And she's like, and she just writes back like, I'm just going to let you do what you do. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stay back. I trust what you're doing. And, I mean, I think
0: that excitement really shows on the page. So,
1: kudos. oh my God, it was so liberating. And now just from doing Drawn Together, it's, it's influenced all the work I do now, like it's, it's changed me as an artist, you know, whether or not you prefer my old work to the work I do now, it's, it's changed me to be more open-minded about um, how I approach things. Now it's not so rigid and dis you know, you know, disciplined in terms of like, I have X number of days for a deadline, but now um, I don't want (sighs) to, I guess I could say I'm enjoying the process more like I'm enjoying making art, not to say that I wasn't enjoying making art before, but th- it, it's really injected a new excitement into the craft. Like I feel reinvented.
0: Yes, totally. So the typography in this book is really special, too, particularly the lettering you use for the title, which looks like it's inspired by the Thai alphabet. Um, do you have like a philosophy about typefaces and lettering?
1: Um, so my, my, my only philosophy is that I feel like illustrators should take an effort to explore their own typography, to, to inject it into their own art, because I think there's something about that hand feel of the work feeling like it was also integrated with the type by the same hand that makes the book feel more whole. Um, now I remember going to art school and they made us take a typography class and it used to be that we would have to hand draw Helvetica. And I remember thinking like, I don't understand why we're doing this. This is (laughs) really boring because Helvetica is a boring font and it doesn't, I'm not enjoying this, um, And then the typographer would, you know, put a tracing paper over there and get her red marker and say, Oh, this letter, O, it's flat here. It's flat here. It's not round enough here. And I'm looking at all these things. And I'm like, I don't see how you see all these flaws. Like I, it's the letter O and then, you know, a term later, I'm looking at it and I'm like, Oh, I see how ugly that letter O is. And then I remember going to like figure drawing classes and then I would be knocking out these figure drawings, and my proportions were spot on. And I, I it, it was, it was not so much, you know, just understanding the letters, but it was like I was better at seeing things. And um, when when I'm incorporating type into into the book, I don't think of I don't think of type just as a way to communicate but I also look at it as a design element so if you have a block of type you don't look at the type I think a, I think most people will look at the type as an afterthought I did this spread I, I now have this blank space to put type I look at the block of type as a shape that I have to integrate into the design um and then, in terms of the feel and the mood of the type, uh, I think I think one of the first times I was recognized for my typography was for Chicken Dance when I did the cover for Chicken Dance, and I had uh, this chicken wearing an Elvis jumpsuit, and the title was on its cape, and it was all done in rhinestones and a and a, and a very bluegrass kind of. Uh, feel like like uh, it's indicative of a old Elvis concert poster. Um, really, what you're doing is you're you're heightening the mood and the feel of the content by uh, dressing up your typography. I mean, someone who's really good at it is like like John Hendricks. I think is really good at it. Um, and I remember looking at his work saying I should be more like this. Like I want to do more stuff where the type doesn't feel secondary to the illustration, but it feels like it's cohesive with the art. Like it feels like it belongs with the art.
0: I agree with all of that, but I also have to say my pet peeve. I I mean, I love it when people do hand lettering and stuff like that, because I agree it should like, it looks so great usually with the art. Mm -hmm. Um, my thing is, I need it to be legible, and that right. includes like that includes sometimes people are trying to be creative and so they put tones that are too similar on top of each other, and a child cannot read that. Right. so I have to be cognizant of the fact that I want a child who is not good at reading yet mm-hmm, <laughs> to mm-hmm. be able to see these letters properly that's like
1: that's like basic design you think so, well, you know. It's like it's, <laughs> con- it's contrast, you know. Yeah. Like if you understand contrast, and and you know, and and you know, as an illustrator, uh, I, I think a lot of people forget that the rule of the illustrator is to communicate. Like that's that that's actually what the term illustrator is. It's to make light. It's to inform. Um, and a lot of people get really drawn into making something. Look really, you know, pretty and slick, and I like to say that it's it's a case where someone's looking at the pebbles and not the whole beach. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. So with that said, you know, one of the things I do at SABWI, I say, you know, the best way to become a better illustrator is just to be a better designer. Like that will solve a huge chunkier problems. And typography is just one of those things that I feel should be part of your arsenal
0: sure so now we have to go into a lightning round because we're running out of town, okay. time yes. so it's sort of a lightning round okay um, <laughs> so aspiring off- illustrators often need to make portfolios whether they're physical or at least online have a good website so what do you think is important to show in a portfolio
1: uh div- like i you should be able to show your range like you know i'll look at some portfolios that are just like oh i love dragons i have a whole dragon portfolio you want to get into children's books, you want to cast a white net. So draw, you know, draw children, draw dinosaurs, draw cars, draw uh, tractors, uh, things like that. Have, you know, don't don't pigeon your whole yourself into just one thing. Like, be very diverse in your work.
0: Yeah, totally. What piece of advice do you find yourself often giving students of illustration?
1: Um, be patient. I feel like there's people who give up a little too quickly. Um, and... Also, like when I'm at SCBWI, one of the biggest frustrations I have, and I know it's probably why I I feel like I would be a horrible teacher, is that I get really frustrated when I realize that I want success for this person more than they want it for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like I want them to want it. And I feel like if you have that passion for it, like everything's going to fall into place.
0: Hmm. Um, what piece of advice do you wish somebody had told you before you started? And also, <laughs> would you have even listened if they had told you?
1: Oh, gosh, you know, um, it's funny, because like, because like, now that now that I'm, I'm now that now that the years of hard work have really taken its toll on my body, uh, pace myself, like maybe, maybe slow down a little bit. But Honestly, like, I don't think I would have taken the advice now because I don't think I'd be where I am today if I wasn't, if I didn't kill myself for the first 10 years. It's stupid. It's stupid, I know.
0: Uh, well, I mean, look, we all did that. <laughs> That's what your 20s is for, right? right yeah. To burn yourself at the point. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> so what are you drawing this week?
1: Oh, gosh. So I'm uh, finishing up a book of poems uh, for Little Brown by... Uh, author Rhett Miller, who is a the lead singer of this band called the Old Ninety Sevens. Um, I am finishing up illustrations for Scholastic for a picture book manuscript that was written by Betsy Bird. Uh, Mo Willems and I are doing another Elephant and Piggy book. Um, what else do I have? Oh, I am working on a graphic novel memoir. So i am writing I am writing a, a graphic novel memoir for first second that will be edited by my editor Connie Shu. And then um, I agreed to do an interview for this uh, illustrator's publication. So I have to do another interview after this and then turn in some illustrations for that. So So this is is what
0: a slacker week looks like for Dins and Dad.
1: This (laughs) week alone, yes.
0: Wow, I um, not
1: joke I'm, I'm not joking. <laughs> I know
0: you're not. I know <laughs> So uh who are some of your favorite up and coming illustrators that everyone should keep an eye out for? and I will link to their portfolios in my show notes.
1: Okay, um so i I'm loving the work of Matthew Forsyth.
0: I'm obsessed, literally yeah. obsessed.
1: So like I said, like, you, you know, you brought, you bought that brilliant deep cover. I bought one of his other pieces and I was looking at, I, I was looking at the painting that I have and I was like trying to figure out how he did it. And I'm like, I have no idea how he does this. This is amazing. Um, you know, I, I, I really loved, uh, I, I, and I might hack some of these names. So I apologize. Stephanie Gregan, Little Fox in the Forest. I don't know if you saw that book from last year. It was like a little graphic novely picture book about a fox walking through the forest to go find a, a stuffed animal. Uh, a little beautiful, very, very had a very folksy kind of feel to it. Uh, the tone felt right. Uh, Catherine Roy, I think she's fantastic. Uh, Neighborhood Sharks, and she has this book coming out called Otis and Will Discover the Deep. Actually, I think it just came out on Tuesday. Uh, she does beautiful nonfiction work. Um, Karina, uh, Karina Leukin? is that how you say your last name? She I don't did, know, but I know who you mean. Uh, the Book of Mistakes, which was a great story that I, I it was one of those stories like I, I wish that I had written. And she has a new one. She has a new picture book out called uh, Adrian Simcox Does Not Have a Horse. And uh, just the cover alone, you can just see the energy in, in the brushstrokes. Uh, and she has a very, her work, her style has a very European feel to it. And I'm I'm a huge sucker for that European aesthetic.
0: I hear you. So this is um, the question that I ask all my guests, which is what are you currently obsessed with? It can be bookish, but it does not have to be. Okay. And while you're thinking about what yours is, I will tell you what mine is.
1: Okay. So I actually have two. Uh, okay.
0: But let me tell you mine first. Okay, sure. Um, my current obsession is a podcast.
1: Oh, okay. on uh, the same page what? here.
0: <laughs> okay. It is the podcast Graphic Novel TK. Oh, Okay. It is two hosts, Gina Gagliano and Alison Wilgus. Who Gina. Take a- oh my God. I love Gina. I know. And she just started a new imprint at random house. Yes. That was the um, smartest
1: move by random house, by the way.
0: Yeah, like- totally amazing. So this podcast takes a deep dive into graphic novel publishing. Each episode focuses on one aspect of the process. Maybe it's all about how a book gets acquired or an in-depth look at contracts. Um, And the hosts are extremely knowledgeable and they approach their interview subjects with enthusiasm and kindness. I think graphic novel TK is a must listen for anyone interested in graphic novel publishing specifically, but also anybody in the kids book or comics world in general as well. It's just a really good podcast. So that is my current obsession. Dan Santat, what is your current obsession? Uh,
1: My current obsession. I'm, I loved um, Barry on HBO
0: Oh, I did too. That was my obsession two weeks ago.
1: I love Barry, and then now I'm jumping to that other one, uh, killing Killing Eve. Ooh! So that one, everyone tells me Killing Eve is actually better.
0: It does, and Killing Eve has Sandra O oh in it. Yes. Okay, I so, love her so.
1: So that's that. That was that's currently I'm catching up. So that's my obsession. And then the other obsession I have is that World Cup starts this week, so I am excited about World Cup and. It seems like none of my Twitter followers care about World Cup. I will be enjoying World Cup alone.
0: What uh, country do you root for? Um, So I always
1: root for the U.S. And I always had a soft spot for England. But England always let me down. Um, This year, I'm putting my money on France. Because I think they have the deepest squad. But their chemistry still feels like it's in question. But I'm going to stick with them.
0: Cool. I will... uh endeavor to understand something about the world cup and i will tweet you about it (laughs) um okay dan santat thank you so much for taking your time out of your extremely busy schedule (laughs) thank you thank you and uh, i'll see you on twitter
1: oh absolutely
0: thanks again to my guest dan santat and thanks to you for listening you can find dan on twitter at d and you can find me on twitter at literati cat The LiteratiCast also has a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash literaticat. Throw in a buck and you just might win books. Also, you enable the podcast to exist, so thank you for that. If you get the chance and you like the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. More reviews mean more folks can find the podcast. If you hate it, please don't leave a review. Thank you. As always, there are show notes on my website with links to all the books and art we talked about today. That's at com slash literaticast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.